If you would, uh, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, if you would, stand. Uh, the last few weeks we have read some rather lengthy portions of Scripture. This morning we just have two verses um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 24 and 25. I'll give you just a minute or minute to get there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we really encourage you uh, to follow along um, in your copy of God's Word. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one in the seat in front of you, should be, hopefully. Um, and this text is on page 964. Uh, page 964. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23 and 24. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word. Thank you that, uh, as we'll see today, um, and as we see each week, um, that, that even though the, the grass withers, even though the flower fades, the seasons change, the, the ice melts, uh, the sun sets, the moon rises, Lord, your word never fails. Uh, your word never changes. Um, your word is um, good um, all the time uh, because it has been given to us by you. And uh, we, we uh, acknowledge that today, and uh, we, uh, we proclaim that today. Uh, Lord, would you help our hearts to believe this? Uh, Lord, we, we acknowledge also that um, there are uh, so many attacks against your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, we're not surprised by this, um, ultimately, that, that we, we, don't, we don't see these things and, and, uh, and, and panic uh, because your word is all of a sudden under attack. Lord, we know that your word has always been under attack, um, and we know that um, it has always endured. It will always endure. Um, and it will always be sufficient uh, for um, the, the equipping of your people. Um, so, Lord, uh, today would you help us just see that as just a real practical truth? Um, it's a supernatural truth, but would you help us see it as a practical truth that uh, this is God's word for me today? Um, and I, I uh, thank you for it, and I praise you for it. Would you help me um, as, as this word is taught um, just to be a, a servant of your word and a servant of your people? Um, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, so we got, we got a little bit of work to do today, uh, but, but I, have, I have found myself um, in an unusually high amount of circumstances recently to answer the question, so what do you do? Um, anybody ever ask you that question? So what do you do? Uh, sometimes my kids ask me that question. They're like, Dad, what do you even do? Um, I was like, I don't know what I even do. Um, as, as I've become more of a frequent flyer recently uh, since finishing up school, it, it seems to be an inevitable question on an airplane. Uh, you're just kind of stuck there in the seat, and, and people, uh, unsuspecting people ask that question. Um, and they don't realize that it's actually going to be harder for them to hear what I do than uh, for, for, uh, for, than for me to, to answer that. Um, but, but normally it comes up as conversation is struck up. You should, you should see people's faces, by the way, uh, when, when we've kind of gone through their side and then all of a sudden the question comes up to me, so what do you do? You should see their, their faces as they try to recall everything they have said in the last three or four minutes. They're like, it's like they're, 
don't act like you haven't been there. Um, and I don't know why I looked at Jim when I said that, but Jim, I was, uh, but, but they, you know, they, their faces, and then they just either put their headphones back on or just go back into their book. Um, one of my favorite times, a, a, very, a very specific story that I have for you, uh, was one of, the fav- one of my favorite times recently that I've been asked this, and it was one of, by one of my Muslim neighbors. Uh, we, were, we were sitting around uh, the, the, the dinner table um, at some of our Afghan friends' house, um, and as we were sitting there, uh, one of these Afghans just spoke a very clear English. And he asked me, uh, what, what do you do for work? So I talked to him for a little bit. He works for Amazon. He's a delivery driver. He asked me, so what, what do you do? And I said, I'm a teacher. Um, and, and he said, oh, what do you teach? And I was like, oh, man, here we go. So sitting around the table with, with all these Muslim brothers and sisters, uh, brothers, really, um, around, around this, this table with them. And he says, what do you teach? And I said, all right, here we go. Um, I said, I, I teach the Bible. He said, oh, you're a Christian. I said, yep. <laughs> and he said, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, some of you have heard this, first thing that came out of his mouth, so you eat pork. <laughs> I said, you bet I do. Jesus died on that cross and rose from the grave, and by golly, I eat pork. He didn't know that that was going to be a great kind of segue into sharing the gospel with him. But I said, you bet I do, and there was more conversation that I could share with you later, but irrelevant to today. But all these questions are questions that I receive quite frequently, and I have to admit, as you've seen in some of these responses, I admit that I'm not always in the mood to answer the question. Um, I know sometimes what kind of response or reaction or sometimes what kind of conversation this will lead to. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a reason why the scriptures continually call us and Paul even asks for people to pray for boldness, right? Um, and that would indicate that there are times in which we don't feel like being bold, right? We don't feel like uh, entering into this conversation, on the airplane, I've, just, I've got a book to read or I've got a, a show to watch. I've got things I need to do. But there's a reason why continuing the scriptures that we are called to boldness and to proclaim that which is true. And so in 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul doesn't shy away from what the nature of Christian ministry is. Specifically in this one verse, you're thinking, how in the world are we going to handle this one verse? It's really two verses, but we're going to specifically look at verse 24. And in this verse, Paul, something good for us to see today, church, is that Paul doesn't shy away from what the nature of true Christian ministry is. And so as we move towards next week installing two men, Rick and Jordan, as elders in our church, praise God for that and how exciting for that, as we move towards that, really this clarity and this directness from Paul will benefit all of us as we consider what the nature of true Christian ministry is, particularly for leaders in the church. And so more than just for pastors in the church, more than just for for pastors, um, the great aim of those who desire to live faithfully on mission for God is to work for, as one pastor put it, the eternal happiness of people. That we would work towards and work for people's eternal happiness. That's essentially what Paul says here in this verse, and it's the aim of his own ministry. Look what he says again in verse 24. We'll read this several times today. This is what he says in verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy 
for you stand firm in your faith. That's how I want us to answer this question today. That's the question that I pose to us and the scriptures pose to us and the question the scriptures answer for us is what do pastors or elders do? What do pastors and elders do? Both of the, You're going to hear me say pastors some. You'll hear me say elders some. They're the same thing. Uh, forget whatever background you come from um, and whatever upbringing you've got to, to where they have di- uh, distinguished those two things and say, I was lied to. Um, and, and remember that this morning that the assumption is that pastors and elders are the same role um, and they are used interchangeably in the scriptures. And this morning we will use them in that way. And so we have much in the scriptures over and over again about the qualifications for pastors. First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are two of those places. Uh, we see the command and the assumption of elders in Acts 20 and in Philippians chapter 1. And we've said this before, and I want to say it again because I, I want you to make sure that we, that we understand how, how confident we are in the way that God has designed his church that this is, this is that statement, that, that the church being led by elders is not just descriptive of the early church, it is prescriptive for how God has always and forever intends for his church to be led. Now, I'm not saying that you are fully living in sin. If not, there are some churches that because of certain circumstances, they're not able to be led by more than one pastor. But it was early on in the scriptures, Paul, over and over and over again, anytime elders are used in the scriptures, it is used in a plural way. James chapter 5, or, or, uh, James chapter five calls on the sick to call for the elders of the church to come and pray over him, to anoint them with oil. And so the church being led by elders is God's prescriptive plan for his people. You understand what I'm saying there, right? You may not agree, but you do understand what I'm saying. It's his prescriptive way, not just a descriptive way. But when it comes to what pastors do, so we've seen the qualifications, we've seen the commands and the assumptions, but when it comes to what pastors do, there, there may be less in the scriptures than our like, real analytical minds wish there were. Maybe we wish there was more of, okay, well, what do they actually do? What, what function do they fill? Well, one of those functions, first, let me just say this, one of those functions is found in 1 Timothy 3, and it is to teach. One of those, like what they do on a day-to-day basis is that they teach the Word of God. They teach God's people. They are, those, they are men who are able to teach um, and to counsel from God's Word. But what is underneath those things, what is, what is underneath those things that elders may do in the life of the church and what they may utilize um, as tools to help them shepherd? shepherd. So, for example... Uh, a couple of things that we do as pastors in this church to steward our shepherding responsibilities well is we have created a membership process. And some of you are like, well, where's the membership process in the Bible? Let me just say, it's not there. <laughs> we'll just admit that. Uh, another thing that we've done is we have created an elder process. Uh, let me tell you what you're not going to find in the Bible. You're not going to find an elder process. But there are principles in the scriptures that, um, that lend themselves and give us direction in how to shepherd our people and to realize that shepherding and preserving and protecting the ministry of the church is very important. And so there are freedoms and there are liberties that shepherds may take and that congregations may take in order to pursue God's mission and to pursue God's mission faithfully. And so what is underneath those things that pastors may utilize to help them shepherd well, Paul answers that in this text. He answers what is underneath. And so let's look again at the text. We're going to read this verse again. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you 
did I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So the occasion for what Paul writes here um, is that he has been prevented from fulfilling the promise that he made back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5, to visit these people. He says, I'm coming, I'm coming. And, and now Paul has not been able to come. Um, and so as we study this letter, there are circumstances that prevent him from coming. Uh, for, for whatever reason, Paul is not able to come. And, and when he said he would and how he said he would. Now, what Paul didn't allow these things to do, these circumstances that prevented him from coming, what Paul didn't allow these things to prevent him from was teaching them something about the nature of his ministry and his heart for them. He says, hey, listen, I can't come to you right now and in the way that I promised to you, but, but let, me, let me make sure that you are aware of something and know something. Notice here, just as a, a way of, of maybe application for us today, um, something, a very strong implication for us today, Paul isn't a passive or a dismissive leader. He doesn't just tell his people, get over it. He doesn't tell his people, you know what, just trust the Lord, you know, just, just trust God and, and everything's going to work out just fine, which... That's a, by the way, that's a, that's a good uh, piece of counsel is to trust the Lord. But Paul doesn't say that here. He's not passive. He's not dismissive. But he is one who is very eager to shepherd his people and to shepherd the hearts of those whom he's been called to serve and to model for those whom he is called to lead. And so with teaching and direction, he addresses in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he addresses three things. You don't have to go there right now, but you're going to see three things as we go through 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul addresses suffering. Paul addresses his change of plans, and he even uh, addresses the nature of leadership. On all of these occasions, he turns them into theological lessons. So, so he's got suffering. Man, I think one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he talks about suffering. We talk about the God of all comfort. Blessed be that God who provides comfort in our time of affliction. And so on all of these occasions, Paul turns them into ways that he's going to instruct and shepherd his people. He is a man, as 1 Timothy 3 says, who is able to teach, who is, who is able to take a circumstance and to apply it to what God is doing in this world. And so Paul and the church at Corinth are each facing what we may consider as crises. They're facing these crises, and yet in them, Paul provides godly, wise leadership committed to the joy of these people. And so, church, for us today, for us today, this message falls in the context of what may be a whole other set of crises. And so, if I were to try to briefly identify those, we could look at, at two things. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on these, but, but we could look at what is, what is known as abusive leadership, uh, leadership that, that abuses, leadership that takes advantage of. Um, by the way, sometimes the way that we abuse leadership is by abdicating leadership. We, we get that? Um, look at Genesis chapter 1. Um, is, is, is Adam a explicitly abusive leader? No, the, the, the leadership abuse that Adam is guilty of is one of abdication, one who, who fails to fill his responsibility as the head, as the leader of his wife. And so sometimes the way that we abuse leadership is by abdicating it. And so let me kind of bring this down to even more ground level men. This isn't just about leadership in the church, but also in the home. Some may struggle with too strong of leadership, or maybe not too strong, but leadership that abuses or doesn't shepherd well. And then others 
may abuse the leadership that you have been called to give by abdicating leadership, by just checking out, by just, you know what, I just got to get away. And man, there, is, there may be no mindset more applauded by our society than that, that you just got to go do you, right? You just got to go take care of yourself. You just got to go do what's best for you. Let me just say, you do need to take care of yourself. But man, you have been called to care for your family. And the way that leadership is abused today is both to, leadership that's too aggressive or leadership that completely abdicates the responsibilities that they've been given. Uh, the, the, other, the other thing that we have to see in the realm of leadership, the challenge, these, these are the challenges of leadership today, abusive or abdicated leadership, but also this. So, so I'm kind of putting that side on, on, the, on the kind of the, the side of the pastors, but let me just say what the challenge is for you as the members, as those who are um, under the leadership of pastors. One, that challenge is the assertion or the insistence of self-rule or autonomy or this anti-authoritarian spirit that I don't need the counsel or the wisdom or the advice of anybody but my own. It's funny because most of the people who feel that way are glued to TikTok, and they, and they, and they are not unled people. <laughs> they are most certainly led people, not led people, you know, like led. They are people who are under the influence and the leadership of, of many. Yet when it comes to, to being led by those in the church, it's almost like you just stay out of, of what I'm doing over here because I can make my own decisions. And let me, let me just say, I'm not advocating for some sort of like weird cult-type behavior or anything like that. But let's just see that there's some, some, some mixture here of these two things. And so we're not here for a sociology lesson. Um, and so I'm not going to spend a great amount of time trying to analyze those things. But, but in those two things the abusive leadership and the assertion of self-rule or autonomy, we see an issue both in how leadership is executed by leaders and both how uh, it is received, by how, by how leadership is received by people who need to be led. And so I will also say that these two things don't arise out of mere sociological flaws. And so I said we're not here for a sociology lesson, but let me just make very clear, this, these aren't sociological issues. These are both deeply theological issues that arise out of our sinfulness. And so abusive or abdicated leadership and a spirit of self-rule or autonomy or anti-authoritarianism are not just sociological issues. They are theological issues that are a result of the sin that exists within our hearts. And so let us not make the mistake of thinking that what Paul says here doesn't apply today because of how wicked we have become, but because there is ample biblical evidence and context for each of these postures. The Bible addresses both of these things. What the Bible lays down about leadership doesn't exist without these attitudes in mind. So, so like, we, we really do believe, let me, let me just, uh, again, we have theorized the scriptures being sufficient, being God-breathed and inspired. It's kind of like a great verse that we have. But, but know that that is not theoretical. Like it, it works here on the ground level. The Bible addresses both of these postures, um, the, these positions towards authority and abuse of authority. The, the Bible addresses, we really do believe that the scriptures are sufficient. We believe that they are inspired, that they are God-breathed that they are good for teaching, correcting, reproving, and correcting us so that we may be completely equipped as people of God. That's what we believe. And so that means that it tells us what's right in leadership 
despite the abuses of it. And we submit ourselves to what the Word says. And so those of you who are maybe bent towards abusive or abdicated leadership in the church or in the home, let me just say, the Scriptures speak directly to you. The scriptures, the scriptures are not irrelevant to you. Those who may be bent towards um, insistence of self-rule or spiritual autonomy or an anti-authoritarian sentiment, the scriptures look you square in the face and say, no, you, you do have someone higher, namely God, who you are to submit to. And you have God's ways who, which are laid out in the scriptures. And so with all of these postures in view, Paul here gives us the foundation, and again, the prescription for Christian leadership. And what is that? So what is, the, what is the, the healthy way? What is the healthy way in contrast to abusive, abdicated leadership or autonomy or anti-authoritarianism? The healthy way of leadership is what Paul says here. Not that we lord it over your faith. Paul's just saying, hey, listen, we're not lord. We're, we're, Paul's, a, Paul's a leader in the church. He's a leader of leaders. And he's just saying, listen, we're not Lord over your faith. There's one Lord, Christ. And he is Lord over your faith. And then Paul says, but even though we are not Lord, and especially because we are not Lord, we work with you for your joy. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And so in the midst of all of these challenges, perhaps we don't have to guess what we are to do. Perhaps in the midst of the challenges of leadership today, perhaps we don't have to guess what we are to do, whether to embrace the Bible's version of leadership or to, or, or to abandon it as some archaic model. This is no archaic model. This is timeless. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So is this all the Bible has to say about leadership? Certainly not. It's not all the Bible has to say about leadership. We've, we've preached several sermons on the other texts where elders are addressed, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 Peter 5, all of that is in view, and it's not disconnected here, but as we seek to address some more of the practical nature of what elders do or how they do it, this is key. This is key for us, that pastors, leaders, elders work for the joy of the people of God, work for the joy together with one another for the people of God. So maybe at this point, you're asking a really important question. Maybe you're asking this really important question about the context of this passage, um, you're asking about the context of Paul's ministry and how or even if it applies to what pastors of local churches today. I'm really glad that you asked uh, because um, I want you to look briefly with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. Go with me over to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read three verses, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Um, and, and I'm going to go ahead and give up front what's happening here. Uh, Peter borrows Paul's language in exhorting those who are now elders in the broader church as it, as it has expanded into the world. Peter uses the same language. He steals Paul's language um, the, the, in, in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for, uh, not for, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, some versions say not lording, 
over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Paul borrows and uses the same language as the church has now expanded and the church has developed. Peter uses the same language that Paul uses, that we will not lord over your faith, but essentially, in application, that we will work with you for your joy. So Paul, in the Corinthians passage, is laying out what fuels his and Timothy's ministry. And by the way, it ought to be the same for leaders today. So church, just know something real quick. Um, I'm talking to you, uh, I'm talking to, to, our, to our body, and uh, Rick and Jordan and Thomas are not distinct from that body, um, but I'm also kind of talking to you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you guys as a challenge um, and an understanding of what we men have been called to do in the privilege of shepherding these people, this church. And so not that what we have discussed already isn't practical, but I want to give some time and what remains to what pastors are called to do and how they execute faithful ministry with 2 Corinthians chapter 124 as our backdrop. And so look at how Paul modeled working for the joy of God's people and the implications for us today. And I want us to borrow from Acts 20. So we're going to spend the rest of our time in Acts chapter 20. We're not going to read this whole passage right now. Um, I would strongly encourage you to do that. But this is, in this text, we see how Paul, the apostle, models working for the joy of God's people. What are, or the way that I can frame it is this, what are five components in Paul's ministry um, that shows us how he modeled to work for the joy of the people of God? And by the way, he's speaking to elders here, um, and, and I think probably teaching them what they are to do as well. And so I want us to see five things, and they're going to be five very practical application steps. And so listen up. If you have notes, take them. This is where you can do that. I want to see five ways that pastors work for joy. And so Rick, Jordan, and Thomas, let's listen up. Church family, listen up, uh, because in this, you'll see what the aim of pastors are. And in these, my hope is that you will hold us, church, accountable to these things. Um, and let me just say a couple of quick things. I've been sending out a weekly email to, to those of you who are our covenant members um, to try to be very communicative with you, to tell you what, members are, uh, what, what elders are and what they're not. Um, it, would be, it would be very beneficial for you to go back and uh, read that um, and to see that um, and to see that there are, there are things that, that pastors are not that you might think that they are. Um, you might think that they're hired guns. You might think that they're board members. Um, but let me just tell you something. Uh, pastors are not board members. Um, they are shepherds. They are under shepherds of the, the good shepherd. Um, they are those who care for God's people imperfectly, yet they strive for that. Um, and so keep those things in mind as we read through these things and realize that there is great sacrifice, there is great cost um, to, to serving in this way, and great joy, by the way. And so from Acts 20, I'll give you the, each, uh, each the passage. Pastors work for joy by first living among God's people. Verses uh, 18 and 19 of chapter 20 says this. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots 
of the Jews. And so pastors work for the people of God, for, for the joy of the people of God by living among the people. Now, intrinsic in our understanding of a shepherd, hopefully you agree with this, intrinsic of our understanding and our knowledge of a shepherd is knowing that shepherds are among sheep, right? Um, one, one way that it's been put is shepherds smell like sheep. Um, the only difference is they don't have four legs and, and hopefully they're not too hairy. Um, but the shepherds smell like the sheep because they're among the sheep. We see this in Acts chapter 20. Uh, we see that in Peter's exhortation in 1 Peter 5 to shepherd the flock of God among you, not to shepherd the flock of God below you or uh, the flock of God that you are above, but the flock of God that you are among. Pastors work for joy by living among the people. So Paul exhibits his amongness in verse 18, and Peter commands the elders later to shepherd the flock of God among you. This isn't, church family, real quick, this isn't only about accessibility. Um, let me just tell you, like, look, we're humans, right? Like, unless you are, like, bleeding and in the ER at 1.30, if you text me at 1.30, I'm probably not going to get back to you until about 10 o'clock in the next morning. Um, and so though I'm among you, though pastors are among you, uh, none of our pastors are expected to be superhuman. Um, by the way, you're not expected to be that either. Um, and so when pastors live among the people of God, it's not only about accessibility. Let me just say, you don't, you don't, all, you, we, you don't got 24-7 access to, to all the pastors. Pastors have families. Pastors have wives. They have children. Um, they've got other responsibilities. And so being among the people, pastors, um, is not only about accessibility, but as one person said it, um, about identity, that we identify with our people in their sins and in their struggles, that we lead the way in repentance. Can I just say, again, I've said this before, if you don't believe that repentance is an ongoing act of the Christian, um, then just ask the people around you <laughs> how they feel about your need for repentance, and they'll be like, yeah, you probably need some repentance, bro. Um, repentance is an ongoing posture of the believer. Yes, we've been forgiven. Yes, we've been justified. But as Calvin said, when Christ called men to repent, he meant that the whole of one's life to be one of repentance, that we would repent when we are wrong. And so pastors are lead repenters. We are among the people, not just in accessibility purposes, but in our identity purposes. Pastors and members alike, we said this in the email last week, must remember that pastors are first sheep and secondarily shepherds. We are first, we're first church members. Rick, Jordan, Thomas, you are first a church member who went through the membership process that those of you who are members also went through um, and have submitted themselves to God's word and to the leadership of this church, including myself. I'm included in that too. They're first members and then they are shepherds. Pastors work for joy secondly, um, by telling the whole truth, by telling the whole truth. By the way, um, this is preaching on pastors and as a pastor is, feels like a very vulnerable thing. You know that, right? Because here I am preaching this thing and listen, I don't know what kind, of, what kind of environment you grew up in and how, you know, Pope-like the pastor was. Uh, Pope is a joke, by the way. Sorry, uh, I digress. Um, I don't know how... That, that was, that's distracting. But um, I don't know the kind of environment that you grew up in, how perfect the pastor was supposed to be, how, how beck and call the pastor was supposed to be, um, how, how flawless he was supposed to be. Uh, but let me just say that 
any pastor who ever shepherds here will be a deeply flawed man, will be a deeply flawed man in need of grace, um, in need of humility, um, in need of patience, in need of friendship, um, in need of uh, being served, um, in need of being prayed for in all of those ways. And so pastors work for joy by telling God's people the whole truth. Look at verse 20 and 21. How I did not shrink, I love this language, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastors must be honest men and also courageous, bold men. And they must be convictional men. This will take place both in how a pastor counsels and in how a pastor teaches. And so if, if you're looking for a pastor to tell you all that wants to tell you that man, is, that man is unfit to be a pastor, because that man will not tell you all the things that you want to hear and wish you could hear, let me just say, as pastors work for your joy, they're not just working for temporal joy, they're working for your eternal joy. Um, in fact, working for eternal joy means that sometimes your, your temporal joy and happiness is kind of at a low point. And so pastors tell the whole truth as Paul exemplifies, even in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 20. He says, therefore, I test you this, this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. By the way, this is, this is challenging. I would say, let me just confess this. The first couple of years of pastoring this church, um, I, I'm not saying that I've swung to the other extreme. I hope that you know that. But the first couple of years of pastoring this church, I was, a, I was obsessed with people's pleasure of me, that, that people would be pleased with me, that, that people would, that was, that was what I was fixated upon. Um, there were times where truth ought to have been told, where I did not tell you the truth. And if you come to mind, and the Lord convicts me specifically of that, I will come and I will apologize for that. And, and there may be times in the future where a pastor gives you unwise or even unbiblical counsel, and that pastor being a lead repenter will come to you and apologize for that. But there are a whole host of things that sometimes prevent pastors from being the faithful, godly, God-fearing man that he is called to be. The third thing, pastors work for joy by enduring and embracing hardship. By enduring and embracing hardship. Hey, you three men in church, um, pastoring is not just about the meetings that we're going to have once a month. Pastoring is about enduring hardship among our people. And our church knows, men, they're, they're, getting, they're getting these things that will be shared with you even later. They're getting these things that if you are not enduring hardship, then these people have ability and reason to come and say, you're not enduring hardship. You're, you're living too, too conveniently and all of those things. But we see in verses 22 through 25, look how Paul exemplifies this. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. <laughs> Imagine that. Like, hey, I'm going to the city, and I know exactly what's going to happen there, and it ain't, and it's not going to always be Lydia in Acts 17, waiting in purple linen with a dinner for me. Sometimes it's going to be imprisonment and great affliction. 
And then Paul says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Pastors, work for work for joy with you by enduring and embracing hardship. They lead through these times with calm, firm, sober-minded judgment. They protect and they preserve the ministry of the church. Pastors work for joy with the people of God by, fourthly, committing themselves to the gospel. By committing to the gospel. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 and 32. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, that is believed to be Paul referencing the gospel, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. For Paul, the greatest evangelist ever, that has ever lived, the gospel wasn't only about evangelism. The gospel was not only about evangelism, but it was also for all of life. Repeatedly, throughout Paul's letters, Paul reminds Christians of the gospel. I don't know about you, but growing up, the gospel was something that you got out of the way at church camp when you were nine. And then you never needed it again, because praise God for that gospel, right? No, Paul says continually to Christians the purpose and the benefit of believing the gospel today over and over again. The gospel saves and is also for those who are sanctified, as verse 32 says. And then, fifthly, pastors work for joy with the people of God by leading in sacrifice, by leading the way in sacrifice, verses 33 through 35. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. True leadership looks like its Lord's way of leadership, which is fundamentally self-sacrificial in pursuit of, of the greater, deeper, longer-lasting joy. Paul's final words in this text are the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So church, pastors are to work for the joy of the people of God, for the the world now and the world to come. And remember that working uh, uh, working for joy in the world to come, heaven, sometimes means those temporary pauses and the joy and the happiness that we experience today. This isn't some faux joy that we pursue, but a genuine joy. And so a challenge for those who are are becoming pastors in the next week. First, three men in church, I want you to hear this. It's like, you know, sometimes I like have have a, I lecture one of my children um, in a way that anyone in earshot kind of feels the sting. So this is not one of those stinging moments. Hopefully this is a joyful challenge to those who are pursuing to be shepherds of this church. I love this challenge. We we cannot give or work for what we do not have. If we are to work for the joy of God's people, we cannot give or work for something that we don't have. Joy and satisfaction in Christ. 
we are to be joy-filled joy workers. Maybe that's kind of, maybe we get t-shirts. I'm a, next time you're on an airplane and somebody asks you what you do, say, I'm a joy-filled joy worker. It's awesome. And they'll be like, what does that mean? And then, boom, gospel. You get to share right there. Members, uh, this hasn't really been a, a text, you know, hopefully it, it has, it surely has been a text that has been official for you and ought to be. But members and those of you who are seeking to become members of our church, um, this is, these are one of the, these, these, some of these are those uncomfortable words that our society has been like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the church would say that. And we're like, yeah, the Bible says it. But members, here's my challenge to you. Receive, pursue, submit, and cooperate with the joy-filled work for your joy. Submit to that. Submit to your leaders. That, that's, again, that's one of those things that feels vulnerable for a leader to say because it's like, drink this juice. That's not what we're saying. We're not doing that. But the word says, and the word puts it rightly, to receive, to pursue, to seek it out, to submit, and to cooperate with joy, the joy-filled work for your joy. And then for all of us, church, you won't get this, this sermon ain't coming next week. It's going to be a, a, hopefully an abbreviated sermon where we'll, uh, service where we'll install these men. But for all of us, as we move into this, this is very exciting to be able to move into. For all of us, church, we're going to look to the ultimate joy-filled leader, right? You know who that is, right? Not Paul. Paul worked for the joy, but only one person secured the joy, right? There's only one who secured the joy. And there's only one person who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame the founder and the perfecter of our faith who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to him. We submit to him. He is our shepherd. As we sang this morning, Isaiah, Isaiah took that text. I gave him this text last week and he said, we're going to sing that shepherd song. He leads us. And so that is, that is my challenge to you. I know that I just kind of butchered that text, but we're going to read Hebrews together if you would stand. And we're going to read Hebrews 12 too. I'll read that, and you can follow along. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hey, Jesus is never going to have to ask your forgiveness. He'll never have to come to you and say, man, I was wrong. Your, your, your shepherd's here, your pastor's on earth will. And when we do, we pray that we are met with grace, that we are met with understanding, that we are met with, brother, I hear you and I understand, and I'm grateful for your example in this way. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your great grace towards us. Thank you that in all your ways, um, in, all, in all the ways that you prescribe, um, in all the ways that you exemplify, um, in all the ways that, that your servants in the scriptures, uh, Paul and Peter, the way that, the way that uh, they, they lead and they, 
they show by example. Thank you that um, in all of those ways you have um, just in a, in a very gracious way shown us what your ways and your design is. Uh, we thank you, Lord, um, that you love your church. Uh, we thank you that um, you've, 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 uh, you've designated a very specific order for your church, showing us that your church is, is very dear and very special. Um, as Ephesians tells us, that Christ gave his life for. Um, and so we know that your church is uh, significant and important enough for Christ to have in, for even Christ to have in his mind um, as he is dying on the cross, that I am dying for a people uh, who, will, who will by faith come to me um, and, and have peace with the Father in heaven. And so, Lord, this morning, would you just help us to see that, help us to understand that? Uh, we praise you for your grace towards us in Christ, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.